Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Uh, happy to be back in the studio with you, Crystal. Indeed. Yeah. Nice to be here. Well, you had, I know you had, a, I don't know how much you want to talk about, but you had a death in the family the other week. So, yeah, hope everything's going okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Everybody's good. Everybody's okay. doing okay. All right. Well, glad to hear that. Yeah. Um, so, today, we're going to be talking to the lovely Marianne Williamson, who, uh, was our first guest ever on Crystal Kyle and Friends. Mm-hmm. I don't know what episode number are we on? 70 something? I, I really I could look it up, but I don't know. Yeah, it's I think it's like 70 something. But uh, anyway, she was the first guest. It was a huge podcast. We had a lot of fun with that. Um she's been she's been doing a lot of great appearances lately. She went on the Breakfast Club with uh Charlemagne the God and uh I it was a great conversation that she had. Yeah, and it also was like for me, there was such a contrast in how she was on that program with them versus every other quote unquote politician that's mm. gone on there. You know, like it's oh, you mean very, she didn't hand him hot sauce, right? And say, like, and like I have hot sauce in my purse. Like you yeah. people like this, right? Oh my oh, god, yeah. Could you so, imagine? Oh god, terrible. And Loki, yeah. that was super racist. So racist. Yeah, totally. it was like <laughs> I like hot sauce. That's a thing, right? Yeah, yeah. You know what was... else I like? Watermelon. <laughs> It's like, God, relax. Yeah. Jesus Christ, Be a please. Person. Yes. She clearly had like a, you know, totally com- comfortable and they had a great conversation. And like I said, it just, you know, compare that to like when Elizabeth Warren went on there. Oh, I didn't even that see that. Pete Buttigieg was on there recently. Oh, Mayor and, Pete was terrible. Yeah. It was so bad. It's just, there's Kamala's did, awkward on there too. What happened with Elizabeth Warren? Did she like. Oh, you don't remember? Oh, this was an uh, incredible moment. Did he press her on the Native American thing? He was like. Charlemagne sometimes is phenomenal. He comes pretty hard at t- he just you know what it is is uh he doesn't care whether they come back or not right so he's yeah. not looking for access and mm-hmm, worried mm-hmm. about like oh they're gonna be mad at me and they're never gonna come back so yeah he was like so what are you like the new rachel dolezal oh <laughs> 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 that's funny yeah that's so, funny anyway marianne did very well in there i yeah. recommend everybody okay watch it. as soon as we're so. done i'm going to immediately look up that video <laughs> to watch it have that in your I don't know how I missed that too because I usually see everything. I don't know how I missed that, but hey, I'm I'm upset with myself that I missed that. <laughs> anyway, so before we get to the conversation with uh, with Marianne, um, Tucker Carlson is heading to Iowa okay. to do a conservative leadership summit thing. Now, um, James in the control room, shout out to James. He was telling me before that uh, Tucker right now is sort of playing kingmaker behind the scenes for the Republicans. Mm-hmm. So like... Apparently, it was uh, Trump Jr. and Tucker Carlson who sort of facilitated the J.D. Vance in, uh, yeah. endorsement that Trump well, just did. Yeah, I I don't have any inside knowledge about, like, their discussion or anything like that. But I just know that uh, J.D. Vance was way behind in the polls. Right. Mm-hmm. And plus, he'd said all kinds of uh, mean but very honest things about Trump early on. Yeah. Um. When, you know, when, frankly, it looked like— Maybe there would be an opening for people who are in the Republican Party but opposed to Trump. Mm-hmm. Now it's very clear the writing is on the wall, so p- total political shape-shifting on that. But Tucker has been having him on his program routinely yes. the yeah, whole yeah, time, yeah. even when J.D. was way down in the polls. So, yeah, I think it's pretty clear connect between, like, who Tucker wanted to be the the nominee and who Trump ultimately backed. So here's the thing. Whenever any political figure— any political figure starts going to Iowa, you know what that means. I mean, you've been following politics for a very long time. That means they're, at the very least, thinking about running for president very seriously. Or they want people to talk like that. And, yeah, I mean, 
Tucker is a performer, ultimately, and an entertainer. And personally, I would be shocked if he actually wanted to go through the work of running for president. So to me, I mean, he's a provocateur. So this is a type of prov provocation from Tucker. That's how I read it. But okay, but people are going to talk about him anyway. Like, he's going to get talked about. I mean, he's despised by Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, sure. MSNBC. They're going to talk about him anyway. So the idea of like, oh, he just wants people to talk about him. If you yeah. get that anyway, then why would you go to yeah, but he, he Iowa? To, he's, he's always got to have a new provocation, right? Whether it's okay, like the men, now, you know. Hear me out, though, because it's possible either now. So he's either thinking about it now for very soon mm -hmm. or... He could be trying to lay the groundwork, especially if he's also playing kingmaker behind the scenes with a lot of these Republican yeah. politicians. He could be laying the groundwork for a post-Trump run. So if Trump runs in 2024, he could be thinking about 2028. Look, it just, you keep it real. This is what people do when they want to run at some point is they go to Iowa. That's what they do. They have some political conference thing, some speech they give somewhere in Iowa. That's always how it works. But, I, I just honestly, I think he's too... Lazy. I mean, this is a man who he's living the good life. He's very wealthy. He's very cloistered. I don't think he wants to actually, you know, do all the work that's required to run for president. Everything. That's why. That's why I'm skeptical. Is I just don't see him wanting to, like, change his lifestyle to actually okay. do something like that. So you're you're a hard no. He's not going to run. I'm full agnostic. I don't know what he's going to do. Uh, and if if he does run, I I think it would probably be more likely after Trump, if because Trump seems like he wants to run this time. But now let's put that aside for a second. I'm agnostic. You say it's just not happening. Okay. Uh, if I, he I'd were say to I'm run, highly skeptical. Okay, if, put me in that camp. Well, I'm skeptical too, but you know, you're it, skeptical. It, I'm highly skeptical. If he were to <laughs> run, okay. Uh huh. How do you think that would work out for him? Uh, I think he would do very well in the Republican primary, and I think he would—I uh, think it depends a lot on who the Democratic nominee is. I don't think it's insane that he could win if we run—if they run somebody like Peter Kamala, you know? Yeah, see, I, it's funny because I, I, can, I can see both sides of the argument in terms of how, how it would go. Because, look, there's been a number of times—it it really is an ironclad fact of reality— that the real world politics is totally different than the media world. It's just not the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, there was Carl Benjamin, a.k.a. Sargon of Akkad, ran for office in the UK and got obliterated. This this was a guy with a huge platform. You know, his politics are not my politics at all, but he took one step into the real world. It was like, boom, it was just over. Cenk Uger ran and he got obliterated. There's been a number of media people who try to run and they get obliterated. Now, with Tucker in particular, also remember, he has been in media for a very, very long time. He only very recently became popular. Yeah. For a long time, he was the bow tie goofball who never made an interesting point in his life. Yeah, I mean, and then on, now he found his niche. He was on weekend Fox and Friends up until and he was on not CNN doing ago. Crossfire and getting obliterated by Jon Stewart. Like the, the counter to your um, assertion that the media world and the political world are two totally separate ballgames is Trump, though. I mean, Trump. Part of how he built himself. But he wasn't up in political media. Conservative base was regular segments on Fox and Friends, and so it's I, not just that he wasn't in political media specifically. He sure not not exclusively, but he certainly was in political media. Tucker is now not just a political media figure; he is sort of a cultural media figure. And so, are you saying you don't think he would do well in the general election, or you don't think he would even do well in a Republican primary? No, I'm not saying. I'm trying to make both sides of the argument yeah. here. I'm trying to show you one of the arguments as to why 
it could largely be a lot of hype is that in my experience, you look at these people who are in media and you might even think logically like, oh, they're going to do really well. And then they get obliterated. They get hammered. They get destroyed because it's just a different ball game. So that's one argument there. And the other argument, of course, like I just said, is that it took him a very long time before he got popular. Nobody liked him for a very, very long time. Now mm-hmm. he found his niche. Now he's very popular. Okay. So that's the argument on that side of it. Um, the argument on the other side of it is, yeah, nobody, he's now the number one rated show on Fox News taking over when Bill O'Reilly was there. Mm-hmm. And um, nobody knows how to do the the Trump line of politics better than Tucker on the right. Yeah. But, you know, but honestly, and now I'm arguing the other side again, he also fell into the same trap that Trump fell into, where 2016, he talked more about issues, agree or disagree with him, his whole fake populist tap dance. Uh, 2020, Trump went so hard on the culture war and he face planted and he lost. Yeah. And Tucker Carlson is the same shit. Like every now and then he'll do some fake populist thing where he pretends to support some whatever, some crackdown on the banks type thing or whatever. Smalls on. What's that? Right, exactly. Well, that was only to bash AOC. That's the reason why he wanted to do that. But like now, most of the time on his show, it's more about culture war tripe. It's just garbage. So... I don't know. I, I mean, I could see him if he were to run, uh, like you said, maybe winning a Republican primary, maybe doing well. But there's been a lot of like, I, again, I'm arguing the other side again here, but like Rudy Giuliani, for example, there was a time in 2007, 2008, right before he ran for the presidency, that he was leading the Republican primary by a mile and a half. He had a halo around and people thought this is uh, this is the New York governor during or New York mayor, was he mayor or governor? I don't remember. Mayor. mayor. New York mayor during 9-11. America's mayor. America's mayor. And he was viewed as like, this This is the guy, he's the one. And then as soon as he oh actually started now. running, it was cool. just like, yeah. it was just gonzo, done. Well, this is where the being the media figure, though, there actually is important information in that you know Tucker would have a diehard fan base to start with. And I think we've talked about before, there are very few cable news hosts that actually have real followings, like that they could go and do a podcast on any platform and people would show up for specifically for them. I think the only two are really Rachel Maddow and Tucker Carlson. So you know he would have that base of support to start with. I think the fact that he understands how to be that provocateur, how to consistently own the libs, which is the only thing that they really ultimately care about. Yeah, I think a Republican primary, he'd be very hard to beat. Um, I don't know about that. I don't know. Very hard to beat. I think he'd be very hard to beat. I mean, not against Trump. If Trump runs, and he would, I don't think he would ever run against Trump. Like if Trump runs, Trump right. wins. He's Here. smart enough to know that he can't run against but Trump. But do I think he's uh, better at playing the media game, more effective on camera than, say, Ron DeSantis? Yeah, I do. So even the like next most popular Republican figure, I think Tucker would have, you know, would probably be able to handle. In terms of the general election, it really just depends. Like, if the Democrats run Kamala Harris, then, yeah, people might end up voting first. Yeah, I mean, it's just, like, it's a sad state of affairs. So I totally agree with what you say about, you know, they've gone down these super online cultural yeah, rabbit holes, too, right. that aren't super connected to people's daily lives. And they've, like, persuaded themselves that this is what everybody cares about, and it's really not. Right. Um, so there's no doubt there are a lot of vulnerabilities there, but you know, I I don't think it's I don't think it's totally out of the realm of possibility that he could pull it off if it was against 
any number of sad, sorry Democratic ghouls that are likely next in line. Something happens when people are involved in politics too much for too long, where they really lose all semblance of normiedom. Yeah. They totally lose the ability to just appeal to somebody who's relatively apolitical or not that interested or maybe slightly interested in politics. They just lose the, their touch with reality. And I've seen it with so many people. Mm -hmm. And it, it happens with people who are just mired in politics 24-7 or online 24-7 and, and versed in this stuff. Yeah. And so I, I get a little sense of that from Tucker, too. And I also keep it real. Um, he's got a smugness problem now. Takes one to know one, you know, I understand too. I come across as arrogant to people who aren't already, you know, don't already like me or aren't already fans of me, right? But like, that is hard to sell in a in a political sense, you know? Like, yeah. it's, you know, the moderate, the independent, the people who are somewhat tuned out, even if they're generally down the line Republican voters, it might, it might, it might not work. But, you know, in terms of a threat, I mean, I just think it's too soon to tell in any real sense because I remember... Um, there was a time when everybody was convinced, including myself, by the way, that Chris Christie was the one to really look out for on the right because he was going to be the one who was the biggest, you know, mm. challenge to the Democrats in the post-Obama era. And then it just, you know, that didn't come to fruition either. So it's just yeah, too well, hard Trump to really tell. Trump really kind of stole the show. As he like, stole the Christie lane. The bigger asshole. Right. Yeah. And Christie was clearly overcoached in the beginning, and he wasn't being himself, which is an asshole. And so if he had leaned into being more like who he was, then he would have had a better chance. But, you know, that but could have, should have, would have, like, didn't happen. And so I guess even though we're doing rampant speculation here, I guess my broad, my overall takeaway is, like, the speculation is meaningless because we don't know until we see how it unfolds what's going to happen. I could make an argument that it wouldn't work, but I I can also make an argument like you said that it would work because, you know, I mean, look at the other look at the other idiots uh, on the Republican side. I mean, I don't even think Trump gets Trump 2016 anymore in terms of what his appeal was, mm -hmm. you know, so never mind the, the Mike Pence's and the Mike Pompeo's like those guys are useless. Yeah. You know, there's nothing appealing about any of them. Trump literally, I don't, maybe you covered this. We we didn't end up covering it, but I thought the comments were interesting. He said at a rally the other day that the way to unify the country was to win the culture war. Right, yeah. That's clat and see that. Which, again, brain it shows virus, you the brain total worms. distance between what some of the crossover appeal was. In, in 2016, 2016, yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to cut your social security. We're going to keep your job here. Yeah. It was all that shit. Now, we mix it in with a healthy dose of xenophobia and bigotry of, of like, course, the Muslims, yeah. it's the Mexicans or whatever. But that other stuff was appealing to people who otherwise wouldn't be that into it. And to your point, the stuff they're talking about now is like— It's very insular. It's, it's just way too online, very insular. Right. It's like, yeah, let me just, like, say whatever the libs of TikTok account is, basically. Yeah, just, again, <laughs> the, just you're, if your whole political ideology is like, I'm going to trigger the libs. And on the flip side, if your whole political ideology is Donald Trump bad— Right. It's like, you guys are insufferable. Well, that's why you can't count any Republican out, because you can never underestimate the ability of the Democratic Party to just, like, shoot themselves well, in the foot. that's a given. That's a given. Yes. All right, tell me about the um, the new economic numbers that just came out, which were kind of disastrous. Yeah, pretty stunning shock report here on uh, our nation's GDP. GDP report shows the U.S. economy shrank 
Now, the New York Times framing is masking a broader recovery. We can That part is a little bit up for debate. But what they say is that the U.S. economy contracted in the first three months of the year. Um, GDP adjusted for inflation declined 0.4% in the first quarter. That's 1.4% on an annualized basis. That was sharply down from the 1.7% growth, which would be almost 7% annualized in the final three months of 2021, and was the weakest quarter since the early days of the pandemic. What they're pointing to that caused this, and by the way, economists were not expecting this. They were expecting there to be relatively slow GDP growth and certainly slower than in the last quarter of last year, but they did not expect it to actually shrink. Um, and what they're saying is that you had a contraction of inventories and also you had um, more uh, imports being brought in, so less being created domestically and more higher imports. Um, the inventories thing is kind of interesting because this speaks to how broken the supply chain has ultimately been. Yeah, isn't China in a lockdown or certain parts of China are in a lockdown? Yeah, Shanghai is in a lockdown. So right? shouldn't that mean— they're talking about Beijing it, as well. Shouldn't that mean imports are down? Yeah, but the, I guess the idea is that people have—consumer spending once again increased. So just as people are spending more money, they're—you know, we don't make anything here. So if they're going to spend more money, it's going to come from overseas, even with, you know, China parts of China being locked down. That's the idea. Okay. The inventories thing is really interesting because, so initially you had uh, a problem where um, obviously, you know, it was an issue just getting your goods and shipping was all screwed up. It continues to be, by the way. And so um, wholesalers stocked up, like they bought more than what they thought they ultimately needed so that they would have more in reserve since it was harder to get the things that they, you know, wanted to then be able to resell. resell. So they built up extra inventory. And now they're sort of sitting on that inventory, not replenishing because they purchased more than they ultimately needed. So that's the part where they're saying, you know, because inventories declined, that contributes to this fall in GDP growth or uh, actually going backwards in terms of GDP growth uh, contraction. And even though you did have consumer spending tick up 0.7% uh, in the first quarter. So does interest rates play into this at all? Potentially, um, yes. Federal Reserve has raised interest rates right. only a quarter of a point at this point. But so not, you know, they haven't done a lot in terms of their policy yet. But they have signaled, obviously, that they're going to do a lot more, not just in terms of raising interest rates, potentially half a uh, percentage point next time or even maybe three quarters of a percent next time, but also offloading assets on their balance sheet. All of that is just slows the economy down. I mean, that's the whole goal there is to like slow down demand and for people to buy less stuff to try to tackle inflation. So could be potentially starting to play into it. But since they haven't done a lot yet, I don't know how much that's a factor. Because I've heard for a long time that as soon as those interest rates start ticking up, then you're going to have all these other issues that pop up in the economy. That's something that I've read a number of times. Um, it, look, I can't tell what is and isn't political at this point when I read, like you said, the New York Times how headline. How they frame it? Yes, read it again for everybody. GDP report shows the U.S. economy shrank, masking a broader recovery. Yeah, like— <laughs> It felt like propaganda to me. See, that's what I'm saying is like, so if you had the exact same set of economic circumstances under Donald Trump, would that have been the headline? I seriously doubt it. Yeah, masking a broader economic recovery when there's a contraction of the economy. I've never heard a contraction described that way. In fact, I've heard like slow job growth numbers viewed as like the hair on fire. Like we only gained 200,000 jobs. We're supposed to gain like 800,000. Nah, now there's an actual contraction and they're like, 
brought a recovery, bro. Yeah. So I don't know. It's this is this is why it's so frustrating in today's uh, you know current environment. Is and I've been following politics for a long time. I've been doing you know my show since 2012, full time, and like I've never trusted information less than I do now. Where I go to read stuff about something I'm covering, and I'm like, I think this is correct, but the fuck do I know? Right. You know? Well, here's, I don't know how you can say masking a broader recovery when you know that inflation is way higher than wage growth is. So people are getting a pay cut like every single month. Right. They just pretend <laughs> so, like that's not happening. Exactly. Yeah. Wages and, went up X percent. It's like, well, inflation was hot more than that. Exactly. So people are getting a pay cut every single month and every single month it's harder to put food on the table gas in the car and make rent and they're saying like actually you just don't know it you just don't get it but actually things are really great and this is the um i see this a lot from i don't know if you see this from liberals on twitter a lot of like the media is not even telling the story of how great the economy really is and the biden recovery and i always democrats are trying to sell like you don't really get that actually your life is great and we're responsible for that. So just like let us tell you which figures you should actually pay attention to. And so that's a little far afield from this particular report and what's going on with GDP, but it speaks more broadly to just the question of how is the economy doing for regular people in a way that matters. It always drives me crazy, and this happens under Republicans and it happens under Democrats, when they use the traditional economic indicators as like all the evidence you need as to the state of the economy, where they're like, unemployment ticked down and it's like, well, hold on. You're using the regular unemployment rate. The real unemployment rate is what's called, it's either the U6 or the U7 unemployment rate. And usually it's about double whatever the official unemployment rate is because the way they do it, they like rig the numbers and make it mask what the actual unemployed number is. And so when people use that, when people use how the stock market is doing. Yeah. It's like, that's not, you're not giving me indicators of how your average American is really doing. And so when they go all in on the marketing of those things, it's like, it happens, it happened under Trump, happened under Biden. Like, it's just, it's so misleading, almost on purpose. Like, I have to imagine that they know those are not the best economic indicators. You know, that when you look at, everybody knows the facts that I brought up a thousand times over, but even pre-pandemic, there was one survey that showed 78% of Americans were living paycheck to paycheck. The economic data shows that um, a little over half of Americans make $30,000 a year or less. And you, you know, you look at credit card debt through the roof, student loan debt through the roof. You look at all these things, which are a better indicator of how people are doing and shh. Nobody's anything about that. So to, to bring it back into the new numbers here, look, I just I don't know. Could the big one be coming? Could the big crash be coming? Because at some point, something's got to give. Because there's so many things that are a giant house of cards. You look at the commercial real estate bubble. You look at the regular real estate bubble. You look at like you said, wages are actually technically being reduced every month because of inflation. At some point, something's got to give, right? It's and it's also the Federal Reserve and. Um, well, we, are they out of tricks? Well, we talked we talked to David Dayen uh, for Breaking Point. He's great about the new numbers, and he also had a longer piece about where are we in the supply chain crisis? Are things getting better? Are they getting worse? How's inflation? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Because there are conflicting indicators mm. in that regard. And I thought he made a really good point, which is that 
look, the Fed is lifting rates, which, you know, is very likely to trigger a recession ultimately um, because they're trying to get inflation under control. Well, when you lift interest rates, what you're doing is you're trying to tamp down demand so that people have less money and buy less stuff. That's what you're trying to do. Is to right, you're incentivizing saving. Yeah, you're trying to tamp down demand. And he said the problem isn't demand, though. The problem is on the supply side. The problem is this break it, broken supply chain. Right. So how does the Fed raising interest rates to curb demand deal with the supply chain issues? It doesn't. And Honestly, I don't really, I mean, I could blame the Fed for a number of things, but the reality is they have a limited set of tools and instruments at their disposal. They're very blunt interest instruments. It's very difficult to tell how much they've kicked in and how much of an effect they've had because there's a significant lag. And so they're using the incredibly blunt instruments that they have at their disposal. What you really need is a functioning government and legislative branch and presidency to be able to deal with these broader supply chain issues rather than just relying on the Fed for everything. So, I mean, that's that's really the bigger problem here. Do I think that we're likely to tip into recession? I think it is very possible. And, you know, some of the key indicators that have in the past um, come just before a recession are, are there and are in place. You have an increasing number of economists saying they expect recession because, you do have the Fed not only starting to lift rates, but indicating they're going to do so more aggressively, even the so-called dovish members of the Fed saying, you know, we're going to move forward with much more aggressive measures and offload the assets on our balance sheet at a much more rapid clip. And because you have inflation numbers still coming in at very, very high numbers, that also increases the expectation that they're going to move uh, aggressively. And so, yeah, I think it's a very, very dangerous landscape right now. You know, this is the problem with globalization. And this is the problem with the so-called free market. And actually, Chomsky makes this point that when Adam Smith was ta talked about the invisible hand of the market, it's actually totally misinterpreted by conservatives. And the, the idea is like, oh, it just, you know, stuff's going to get where it needs to go because that's the way the market works. No, the point, apparently, according to Chomsky, was um, as if there was an invisible hand, you wouldn't have companies basically outsource their jobs overseas because of language barriers and travel issues and things of that nature. So basically, like, we'll have protectionism, even if you open up the marketplace, because basically there'll be an invisible hand that makes it so that the business owners want to keep the stuff here. That That's kind of the idea, again, according to Noam Chomsky. But when you look at what's happening with the supply chain crisis, you understand how bad of a rap so-called protectionism really got all along. Mm -hmm. Because the whole idea was, like, the default setting was, why should we facilitate the laws or even incentivize business owners to outsource all these jobs and then make this stuff overseas. And then if there's a disruption in the supply chain, we could just be asked out on a number of things that we need in this country yeah. that we have the potential to make here. We have the potential to have the factories here and the jobs here and, and create it here, so on and so forth. But they just, for to make an extra buck, they decided let's outsource mm -hmm. it. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying you can, can't do any trade overseas at all. Of course not. But we sh anything we can make here we should make here. Yeah. And the laws should be, you know, structured in a way where there's a premium up for American goods, where you're incentivized more to keep the jobs here. You get the tax breaks, you get the subsidies or whatever, you keep the jobs here. You penalize the outsourcers. Okay, you want to do it? Well, you got to pay an extra tax. That's what a tariff is. 
A tariff is, okay, if, if you're going to do that, we're going to charge you more on it. Usually it has to do with other countries, though. That's more of what the tariff is. Well, it, here's, the, here's the other thing, because there's, there's a couple pieces here. Number one, what you're pointing to is the fact that because of these uh, this neoliberal um, ideology and because the only value was like, what's, you know, let's make the extra buck. Um, that has fed uh, outsourcing that's made the supply chain extremely fragile. Right. And it's not just about outsourcing. It's also about things like the amount of inventory that's held here because there's a cost to holding inventory. Right. That's a great so point. So it's also the move to just-in-time production where everything has to move completely, perfectly, and seamlessly, and all of these 1,000 different pieces that are involved have to be clicking um, optimally or else you ultimately end up with these massive is issues. And so that's what we're really reckoning with right now is that we built in no resiliency because resiliency right. costs a little bit of money. Yep. And we didn't have any value other than just profit margins. And the promise to consumers that the bargain that was made is you'll get lower prices. But now we have inflation. <laughs> Because of that lack of resiliency, that is even giving lie to the idea that you were going to get lower prices. So that's, you know, that's basically the system that we've ultimately set up. And then you also, of course, have the fact that the trade regime that we've constructed has led to, uh, in large part, a sort of global race to the bottom in terms of labor costs and labor right, standards. Yeah. And it did not have to be that way. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is, and this is, you know, something Bernie talks about is, you know, we're not against trade with other nations, but what we've created is a trade system that was designed by, you know, uh, sort of corporate sociopaths who had no interest in any sort of lifting of wage and labor, labor standards globally. And so instead of creating a sort of race to the top, you've had a race to the bottom that has been devastating for American workers, and it's been devastating for workers abroad as well. Well, you remember all the reporting on TPP when they were negotiating that, yeah. how they had it like under lock and key, and even Congress people weren't allowed to see it. And it was like, so who's really making the decisions when it comes to these deals? Who's really making the decisions? It's not the workers. I remember, I think it was the Washington Post, I want to give them credit, before they were owned by Bezos. <laughs> little side note. Um, they broke down all of the interest groups and people who were involved in the TPP negotiations by, like, industry. And there was, like, tiny little number of people associated with labor and, like, thousands that were from pharma and oil and gas at every industry under the sun, massive representation. I mean, it's just, it was a completely corporate written bill with right. like one unionist in the country who was like, maybe we should think about the workers. And they're like, shut up. We don't care. Move on. Yeah. Um, yeah. You made, you made a, a couple great points there. Um, it really is, it really becomes nefarious when you think of the way the supply chain is now, when, particularly when it comes to medical supplies, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it's, like, it's an obvious case. During a pandemic, and you're telling me, like, all of our stuff comes from China, and now we can't get as much of it as we need. Right. That should have been the moment where everybody looked at each other and went, oh, we fucked up with well, this globalization thing. We have to start building more here. Right. We need more jobs here. We need more factories here. We need more industries here. We need to incentivize by any means necessary. And actually, to their credit, uh, I don't know how directly Biden was involved with these negotiations, but now you have the um, electric car factory or electric car battery factory and the semiconductor factory, the microchip factory that's now coming to, I think it was Ohio or Michigan, or I think there's Ohio. one or two factories yeah. in each. Yeah. So now that's a good start, but 
we should usher in a whole new era of this sort of stuff. And the idea that you want to, hey, 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 let's cut back on costs so we can pad that profit margin a little more. Hire some, you know, 13-year-old Malaysian boy or something or Bangladeshi kid. No, Let, we, we got to be done with that. We see the impact now that we didn't manufacture here all along. It wasn't pretty. It was really ugly. Yeah, and Mr. So-called, you know, anti-China and anti-globalist Trump was, of course, at the helm when the pandemic breaks out. And so there was a chance to use that moment in order to message about, hey, we got to change our trade practices. I mean, if he actually cared about any of these issues, which, of course, we all know that he doesn't, we the, now is the time to, to message the American people about why this ultimately matters and why we need to rebalance things. Of course, that did not happen. His biggest legislative accomplishment, the 2017 tax cuts, where 83% of the benefits went to the wealthy, in that bill, they actually incentivized outsourcing of jobs. Right. It tells, so, I mean, that single fact alone tells you absolutely everything. And the other thing that I'll add into this, because you mentioned the electric vehicles, which is really important if you care about, you know, the future of the planet um, and the climate crisis is because we haven't had any sort of a forward thinking policy and any value of anything except for making money. You know, we're also in a very difficult position in terms of um, securing the ability to manufacture those electric vehicle batteries and the cars themselves and the chip crisis and all of those things. So there are a million obvious indicators that the whole direction we've gone in has been a disaster on every single level. And yet the policy response is like, let's hope the Fed can fix it somehow. Anyway, actually, the economy's great and you're just wrong and you don't know moving along. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, um, why don't we go ahead and welcome the lovely and brilliant and wonderful Marianne Williamson. Here she is. Marianne. Hi. Lovely to see you. Welcome back. Always lovely to see you. Thank you. Um, of course, we've seen each other many times, but a lot has happened since the first time we had you on our podcast. Very first guest. So much to get That's into true. today. Well, congratulations yeah. Very first on the guest. extraordinary Very success thank you. of your show and of your relationship. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> That's right. Last Jeez. time it was, yeah, very different landscape altogether. <clears throat> That's right. Yeah. Um, the first thing I wanted to, to talk to you about is there's a really critical congressional primary coming up. You know, a great friend of all of ours, Nina Turner, someone we all really believe in. She is facing a mountain of cash coming in from the outside. She has an opponent in Congresswoman Chantel Brown, who is very much, you know, in the corporate model of politics, but nonetheless perplexingly and outrageously was endorsed by the Congressional Progressive Caucus. You were actually there in Cleveland last weekend. Yep. So I wanted to get from you just like, what's the sense on the ground? What's the feeling of how this whole thing is going? Well, as I said to you um, a couple of days ago, I got the sense that uh, Nina has a fighting chance. Mm. People are waking up and seeing what's really going on. You know, that race embodies um, so much of the struggle going on in this country. It's kind of ground zero, isn't it? I don't think we're going to be able to heal the soul of this country unless we heal the soul of the Democratic Party. And that that fracture between the corporatists and those who are standing on what are really, in my mind, the traditional values of the Democratic Party, um, that struggle is embodied between Chantel Brown, who is supported, unfortunately, not only by the traditional corporatist elite, but also by the so-called progressives in too many cases there, and Nina. Um, the issue of the dark money, um, the poison that undue influence of money is on our political system. It's the cancer that underlies all these other cancers, and it's on full display in that situation. So apparently they have taken out their big guns. <clears throat> She's uh, Chantel Brown 
can afford to be on television all the time right now. It's kind of ubiquitous. She's got these fancy um, mailers that are going out. You know, that's what all that money buys. That's yeah. what it's all for. But when it comes to ground game, when it comes to people power, when it comes to people really awakening and understanding what this contest stands for, um, you get a sense, uh, you get a sense that um, um, the real struggle and the meaning of the struggle is in the air. I just uh, hope that on May 3rd, we'll all be very excited by the results. So I was telling Crystal the other day, I was like, I wish we lived in a world where Nina could have those unlimited resources because I have zero <laughs> doubt that with enough, with enough cracks at it, she's going to win eventually because she has all the charisma in the world, all the talent in the world. She just has a natural knack for talking in front of crowds, much like you do, by the way. Thank and you. like an, just with enough of an opportunity, she'd be able to do it. And so I, I, I just want to... The reason I'm saying that is because if it doesn't go the way that we hope it all goes, I don't want everybody to feel like the wind is out of the sails and now it's hopeless. Because when you look at Corey Bush, for example, mm -hmm. Corey Bush lost to Lacey Clay, and then eventually she ended up beating Lacey Clay. So it's like, it's never the end, you know? That's what well, they do. <clears throat> somebody who is very, uh, has a very pivotal role inside the Progressive Caucus said to me the other day, once people are in the caucus, part of the value of their being in it, in their mind, is that they will be endorsed. The value for us to their being in the caucus is that we get to lobby them on these progressive issues. So we don't want to lose them. That was what he said to me. He said, see, the, pro the only problem with that is, though, that they're not actually progressive. Like, there's a number That's of people the in the Congressional point. Progressive Caucus who are also <laughs> members of the New Democrat Coalition. And Chantel Brown or, is one of them. And Chantel Brown yeah, is one of them. Yeah. So, like, if the whole idea is, like, this is our ideologically left caucus, it's like, well, if you're not acting like that, I have zero loyalty, loyalty to you in any way, shape, or form. And I've heard their argument recently a lot, too, which is, what, what about the things that we are getting done, blah, blah, blah. What you are know, those what, things? Uh, yeah. That's what I want to know. <laughs> Crickets. <laughs> we got a retweet from Ron Klain. <laughs> Wow, no. way no, to go. They, they would argue, for instance, even in the um, in the American Rescue Plan, that a lot of the macroeconomic value um, actually has laid the groundwork for a lot of even the unionizing efforts that we see now because it's loosened things up. I don't know. I'm not trying to take their uh, take their perspective, although I sure would like to see more of that between you and some of them in this town. Mm -hmm. I think that lack of connectivity is really unfortunate because I'd like to see that debate. But I want to go back, if I may, to something that you were just saying about Nina. To me, she is so indisputably a star. This, she's so much bigger than, than just one congressional race on a certain level. So as disappointed as we would all be if she didn't win this race, I agree with you, whether it's a congressional race or anything else. And I also feel, you know, in the Republican Party, if somebody doesn't win a race, the Republican Party brings you in however it needs to bring you in. Mm. Democrats don't do that. No. And of course, Democrats aren't going to do it to the the elite establishment Democrats aren't going to do it for someone like Nina. But all of us have to think in terms of that, that Nina is is of us. Nina is a leader in this movement. And if if not this time, the next time, if not this role, the next one, you don't let a national treasure like that fall away. Yeah, that's right. That is very true. And I do have to say, I mean, <clears throat> We don't know what the polling looks like internally in that race. And I actually think it's telling that Chantel Brown, who has all the money and resources in the world and is certainly conducting polling, hasn't released her internal polling. Because, oh, really? Yeah. So I've, you know, I mean, this is all like you're trying to read the tea leaves yeah. of what is really going on in the district. I feel that if she had 
really positive internal polling that showed her up by a significant amount, she would probably be putting that out there. And then you also have the specter of all of this money continuing to come in, a whole new pack um, funded by a billionaire that is set up basically in direct opposition to the Justice Democrats, by the way. They're calling themselves the mainstream Democrats. And their did you see this? Their, their launch yeah. statement is very provocative. They talk about how we're going to be unapologetically in favor of the Democratic establishment and we're going to push back against these people who say they want to hijack or take over the Democratic Party. And of course, their big play <laughs> the is against Nina Turner. Mm. That is exactly that is exactly the case. Yeah. But when I look at these tea leaves, I just have to feel that if they thought that this, you know, Nina didn't have a prayer of winning um, and that Chantel Brown was just going to romp, I don't know that they would be coming in quite as hard and quite as fast as they are. Well, I look at it. You've got 435 members of the House. You've got 100 members of the Senate. Here's one woman. One woman who wants to stand unequivocally for the economic and social rights of the poor in this country and the almost poor and the barely middle class. One. One. And it's looked at as though it would be the most horribly destructive thing that could possibly happen right. to the Democratic Party, much less to the country. She, the Democratic Party should be embracing the Nina Turners of the world if they really want to expand their base. They seem almost at least subconsciously committed to to diminishing their base, to shrinking their base. Um, it, it, the Democratic Party has become sclerotic. It's um, about protecting what is an, in essence an aberration in terms of the real spirit of the and values of the Democratic Party. <clears throat> we're not trying to um, hijack. We just we're the ones trying to get rid of a the robber who has come into the house. Yeah, to your point, like w Republicans always do this, where if somebody's not towing that right wing line from within their movement, they say you're a rhino, Republican in name only. <clears throat> you never see the equivalent of that on the left. Where they're like, you're a dino, dino, yeah. <laughs> whatever. You're a dino. You're fake. Actually, but, I have heard that. Actually. But, well, I I never hear because from my perspective, what I see is people who are genuinely ideologically on the left. They only have their BS meter can only take so much, and then they're like, all right, I'm out. I'm totally checking out of electoral politics completely. Mm -hmm. And they they're willing to concede the ground in the argument. Okay, if you want this to be what the Democratic Party is, fine. That's what the Democratic Party is. Whereas I look at it, and I I you know the fighting spirit kicks up. Yeah. And I'm like, no, 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 no. The Democratic Party is FDR's <clears throat> New Deal. That's, That's the Democratic right. Party. The Democratic right. Party is FDR's Economic Bill of Rights. That's right. Which was basically a list of just making this country, it would have made this country a thriving social democracy had he lived long enough and we went down that road. And I, I guess that, that defeatism is the thing that upsets me, especially in the case with Nina here, because what you saw is Pramila Jayapal and the establishment really put the knife in Nina's back and twisted it. Mm -hmm. And my reading on that, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, is it... I think, honestly, it's because Pramila Jayapal is trying to placate the Democratic establishment because she thinks eventually Nancy Pelosi is going to pick her to be speaker. And so she's like, I'll be, a, I'll be a good girl. I'll play ball. And you know what? Fine. I'll endorse Chantel Brown over uh, Nina Turner. Why do you think Pramila did what she did? Well, in terms of why Pramila did what she did, my having asked someone who is very well placed there, his point was what I said before. We have to, it's part of the rules. We have that one of the reasons people are in the um, caucus in this in this case, Chantel is in order to receive um, is in order to receive the um, endorsement. If they don't, why would they stay there? Blah blah blah. So we know what they are thinking. Um, he would say that we are wrong to personalize it as Pramila. Okay, How, but however, but yeah, she could endorse on her own. 
Yeah, just like Corey Bush, you know, said, okay, that's what y'all are doing. I couldn't agree with you more. However, I think the first thing that Kyle was saying was really even more significant. And that's how much of the base is just saying, okay, I'm out. I think the anti-electoralism is really, boy, talk about playing into the hands of the Republicans. Yeah. Taking or the, the establishment, the corporatists. The establishment, the alt-right, the fascists. Right. That's the, you know, and part of what concerns me is if you look at the money that Nina has raised this time compared to the money she raised last time, I don't think it's because Pramila Jayapal didn't endorse her. It's because of the base just we we too many get so I understand why people are fatigued and I understand why people are frustrated and I understand why people are angry. I understand that not only in terms of establishment politics, but in terms of the state of the country. Yeah, um, it's a time of reckoning. It's a time of facing things that are pretty horrifying to face. It takes time to process that. And I think some of the horror, the fatigue, the frustration, even the anger is understandable and legitimate. But I also think whether it's in terms of an individual processing things like this or a collective, there comes a time when you say, where does my process becoming spewing? Where does my processing become spewing? Where does my working through this in my mind become self-indulgent? Where do I have mm. to say, okay, enough is enough. I've cried enough. I've thought this through enough. We've got to act. And the failure of the progressive base to be as excited as we might be about all of these progressives running in these primaries is more concerning to me at this point than the fact that the progressive caucus doesn't get it. Yeah. So, okay. They're part of the, they're part of the establishment. They're the donors, et cetera. But what about us? Um, not us at the table, but but us in a sense of a larger movement. Um, there, there are some really good progressives running. Um, once again, CandidateSummit.com. There are a lot of good progressives running around the country, uh, not just Nina, um, that I wish more people were excited about. I don't know where that disconnection comes from. Yeah. Um, but it's dangerous. It's it's not healthy. It, I, I completely agree with you. And it does feed into exactly what they want. And to your point about, you know, here's this this one individual mm -hmm. who they think is so dangerous and such a threat to their power. And let's be clear, all these consultants who are running the ads for Chantel Brown and all the rest of the right. standard issue Democrats, they're getting paid. Like there's a lot of big money involved in here too. They recognize her as a real threat to what their whole mode of business is. Correct. So why doesn't our movement also see that she has that kind of power and that any individual person who really is coming at this from, you know, the right place and courageously and with a lot of wisdom too, by the way, that Nina has specifically about how to wield power and how to, you know, be able to use the office to deliver for the people why don't we also see it as potentially as significant and profound as these, they you know, do. mainstream Democrats, <laughs> exactly. quote unquote, actually exactly. do? Exactly. And that's a psychological issue. Um, you know, I'm sure that there were times when abolitionists thought it was hopeless. I'm sure that there were times when women's suffragettes thought it was hopeless. I'm sure there was time when civil rights workers thought it was hopeless. I think that that's what we recognize in each other and in many of the friends and the colleagues that we have is people who are 
we're just revving up if that's what it means, uh, if that's what is demanded by this moment. This is not a moment to, and when I hear people saying, don't vote for these people, they, the only way to destroy the duopoly is to not vote. No, that's not the way. That is the way to strengthen the duopoly is to not Yeah, vote. if people want to vote for some Green Party candidate or whatever, I have no problem with them. They can go that, that. I understand. But don't, but it, it's funny because those same people will say, look, don't voter shame people. It makes no sense. But then they'll turn around and voter shame somebody for voting for a Democrat yeah. if they're progressive. And it's like, wait, I thought you were against voter shaming. Yeah, when, you, when you take yes for an answer is my main yeah. point. And so when Nina Turner gets up there and we all know what Nina stands for, we all know what she believes in. We all know how hard she would fight for these things. The idea that because she has a D by her name that, you know, now you can't vote for her or whatever, that makes absolutely no sense to me. Can I also say, too, that I first knew Nina from when we were both at MSNBC. She was a regular guest. I was a host. So she and she was you. I know you both recall she was early on going to be on, you know, in Hillary's camp. And then when Bernie Sanders emerged, she said, no, this is this is the way I'm going to go. And she made this principled decision, which meant, guess what? She's not being asked on MSNBC anymore <laughs> routinely. Yeah. And she didn't end up, you know, on that track where I'm sure, listen, they're dying for talent over there. Lord knows Nina Turner would do quite well on a, a cable news show um, as talented as she is. So we've already seen in the path that she's walked the sacrifices she's been willing to make for the movement. And I don't know why that just gets completely forgotten and erased. And the other thing that I'll say here, which is another point that you made, Marianne, when you were on um, The Breakfast Club, which, by the way, I thought you did a wonderful job Thank you. there. And they clearly really responded very positively to what you had to say. But, you know, this is part of the power of what Christian Smalls just pulled off with the Amazon labor union, because he had... Everything stacked against him. I mean, everyone, all the, you know, even people who are ideological allies thought there's no way that this thing is going to work out. No chance in hell. And we know just from how the laws are written, how the deck is stacked and how rigged that whole system is and how difficult it is to ultimately be able to form a union. He pulled it off. He pulled it off. And so that just goes to show you that even when, yes, it's unfair, and yes, the deck is stacked, and yes, it's rigged, and yes, you're, they're out to get you and all of those things, miracles still can happen, and people still can, even within that system, through the power of the people ultimately prevail. The power of the people on a level of deep, deep connectivity, so that the word solidarity really means something. I mean, I'm so taken by the stories that Christian Smalls tells about his folding table outside the bus stop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how people would, he said, pray together, sing together, uh, help each other. They truly built community. And that's what... Um, the left has got to think in terms of, you know, in the I Ching, it says, even thieves have alliances. We need to think deeper than allies. We need to think relationship. Mm. We think we need to think. And, and part of that is loyalty. Why isn't the left being more loyal to um, to Nina this time? And I have to say, but sometimes you see more of a certain kind of loyalty, oddly enough, ironically enough, uh, on the right, when they think somebody needs to be part of the gang, we got to keep them in here. Um, we, we have to shift the uh, the way we look at all this, I think, away from what are our political 
um, where do we agree with each other politically to where do we share some deeper level of human yearning and human goals here. And that's what Christian Smalls was about. He had been turned away by the people who supposedly knew how to do this thing at mm -hmm. Bessemer when he went down there. And so when the union organizer elite began to uh, contact him, send him emails uh, about uh, about helping him when they saw he was maybe you know going to get somewhere with what was happening at Staten Island, he turned them down. He said, I know these people. I know this warehouse. And he was, he was dealing, uh, we have to deal not just on the horizontal, but on the vertical. We have to go deep in our understanding of each other, of our loyalty to each other. And I think that's so interesting what you just said about um, Nina. She has been so loyal to these principles. Mm. Why are more people not being loyal to her? Yeah, I mean... To your point about the, you know, how there's loyalty on the right and perhaps that's lacking on the left. The loyalty on the right that I see is all around the shared purpose of triggering the libs. That's yeah. like true. The, that's the, the whole bigger. That's the bigger project, and so there there seems to be more unity from various different factions, whether it be the evangelical Christians or they have an organizing right or, principle. Right. There's more immediate adrenaline rush to common hate than Correct. to common love. That's right. Mm -hmm. And what what I see on the left is. The reason why there's the lack of that unity is because there are people who we're told are in the camp and on the left, and then they burn us a thousand times over. And that story's happened so many times that now any inkling of that from people and they think, oh, this person's the enemy. And so there's this endless fractionalization and fact, uh, fractionalization, that is a word, right? I think that's a word. And fact, fracturing Both. on the left. That's there you go. That leads to fact. Fra <laughs> fracturing on the left. Um, so I think, I think that's the problem. But to the Christian Small's point, and, and you spoke about this beautifully at, where were we? What uh, college were we at? Columbia. Columbia the other day. Um, he, he did give people hope. He reminded people, hey, this is actually possible. Like, you just have to put the work in and be dedicated. And he flew a little bit under the radar. And then, boom, it worked. Now we're talking about everything that's happening with Starbucks unions where, you know, they're, I don't know, they're one eighty plus percent of the... of the Oh, more than that. More it's than like, that. I think they're, uh, it's something like... They've gone like 29 out of yeah. 32. So, so yeah. numbers are somewhere around. I spoke around. at the Unity Fest in Richmond the other day. They just had seven wins, uh, seven of the Starbucks. That's wins. amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. And, and so what you see is, and this is the way history always works, you see that when you're in the struggle, everybody looks at each other and they go, this is impossible. Like, we're not, we're not going to get this done. This is crazy. That's, I mean, you go talk to somebody in segregated Mississippi in 1962, and they'll look at each other like, segregation's not going away ever. What are you talking about? Then it did. And no, then no, so impossible that. becomes inevitable after you win. Then everybody says, oh, of course that was going to go away. Well, it's like, no, you had to put the work in. Yeah. It's seen inevitable as inevitable in retrospect. Right. Also, yeah. when you said a few minutes ago, people have been burned so many times. I don't think our generation even knows what burned so many times means right. in a historical context. If you look at that of the compared to the struggle of the abolitionists, the struggle of the women's suffragettes, the struggle of the civil rights movement, which I think, which is why knowing history is so significant, even when you were talking about about um, FDR. I'm reading, even right now, I've been reading uh, recently a lot about Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt. It was the exact same thing, calling them socialists, calling them communists, mm. uh, scaring workers, saying you'll lose everything. It's the same thing. And I find uh, knowing the history and knowing what other people have gone through in former times, not only very instructive, but it also tells me to toughen up and stop complaining and stop whining. We're just a generation that has been groomed to expect everything when we want it, what we want when we want it. And that's not to minimize at all 
the disappointment or the pain, uh, seeing what the DNC did to Bernie, uh, seeing how many times people have been promised things, particularly by the Democrats, um, and then not received, whether it has to do with environmental issues, economic issues or whatever. I'm not minimizing any of that, but I'm saying, I hate to use war imagery, but it, it, let's just use the, the heat in the kitchen. If you're going to be in the kitchen, I learned that running for office. If you're going to be in the kitchen, don't complain about the heat here. Mm. This is what this is. And I think we need to support that in one another. Yeah. I think the um, disappointments of millennials and Gen Z, though, go deeper than just like, yeah, we wanted to Bernie to win and then it wasn't fair. It's also, you know, these are generations that uh, especially, you know, people, millennials who came of age with the Iraq war lies and what that exposed about our political class, which ended up being bipartisan lies. And you have the financial crash and collapse and you have the fact that Wall Street gets bailed out and Main Street just basically gets screwed. And one thing I, I read about, um, you know, young people, Gen Z and, and uh, young millennials who, you know, part of their formative radicalizing experience was their parents having their ho homes foreclosed on. That really, you know, has motivated their politics as well. So I do want to speak up for that well, generation. I mean, I'm saying, yeah, like, Marianne's point is yeah. take that and do something right. productive with yeah. it. That's I agree with that. Right. I agree with that. They, they shot and killed our leaders in front yeah. of the right. yeah. They shot and killed the students at Kent State, and they were drafting people to go. I just don't to, want to trivialize yeah, no. it. We're not it's just like, no, no, no. you know, it was did the presidential campaigns no, no. were disappointing. No, so I we should But also, I think something else here. When I was at the at, at Richmond the other day for the Unity Fest. It is amazing how many of these Starbucks unionizers are Gen Z. And there's a real difference between the millennials and Gen Z. I think that's true. It's yeah. unbelievable watching yeah. the Gen Z. I couldn't believe uh, the people I was talking to, talking to, and they were so articulate about what, what unionization means and what the resurgence of the labor movement means. And they had this context in this. Mm. And, and then I would say, how old are you? 17. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And they uh -huh. just... Um, Maybe the fa and, and it, you know, every generation has its pain and every generation has its wisdom. I, I think that's almost a, a religious truth, you know. Um, but I think with the Gen Z, their audacity, they just don't even care what went before. These aren't even 20th century people. Mm. That fascinates me. And they they don't even e even they know they shouldn't be at the effect of bad ideas left over from the 20th century. And so I'm seeing something really exciting with that with that group. There's one other point, sorry, that I want to make about that, which I think is really important. I don't I obviously the credit goes first and foremost to the workers who have said, you Absolutely. know, looked at the <clears throat> long odds and the insanity of it and said, you know, fuck it, we're going to do it and actually did it. Mm -hmm. um, but I also don't think it's an accident that that comes immediately on the heels of two you know, groundbreaking Bernie Sanders campaigns where he foregrounds Absolutely. labor and puts that at the center. So that goes back to the conversation about Nina and about why these fights, even when you don't ultimately get across the finish line, how they do start to change things and change the culture. I mean, the very first Starbucks union that was successful was in Buffalo, where India Walton had just won, you know, run successfully in the Democratic primary and then get screwed out of the mayoralty ultimately in the general election. But I don't think those things are an accident either. Every generation stands on the shoulders of the one that built before it. Martin Luther King was in Memphis the day he was assassinated in order to take a stand with the striking garbage workers in Memphis. Uh, Susan B. Anthony did not live to see the passage of the 19th Amendment. I think the kind of depth and wisdom that we need to be working towards within ourselves means that we're serving more than our immediate needs anyway. We're serving the ages. We're serving the larger arc of history. And um, whether we live to see a particular something or whether we get to 
to reap the benefits of a particular mm -hmm. something isn't even the larger issue. The larger issue is what needs to happen. Not what I get from it, but what needs to happen. And when we join with each other in that, um, like I said, that's more than an alliance, such as an alliance of thieves. It's, it's, I think it's solidarity at a whole new level. And that kind of solidarity, as Christian Smalls proved, cannot be defeated. Mm -hmm. With the over $4 million that Amazon spent on union-busting activities and consultants, he raised $120,000 on a GoFundMe page. And he won. And, and I think also, and that's another thing about him, the role that um, an inspiring and inspired leader can play. Mm -hmm. Because what that person, it's like a tuning fork. <clears throat> when you look at all the inspiration and all the encouragement, people not only at Amazon, uh, at, at Starbucks, at, 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 in businesses and industries all over the country are feeling because of that one success. Yeah, that's so you right. never know. And Bernie, of course. So, and and everybody, you know. I think we're living in a, um, you know, my generation knew that if a, a, a cultural and social and political revolution is led by soloists, they have the system has a way of dealing with that. You just shoot the soloists. This time, because um, it's a song, they can't shoot the song. This this is genuinely guerrilla. Where to go? They, they don't know. Well, who do we fight? Who do we try to take down? So they can see it as Nina, but Nina's going to keep going. And there's somebody behind Nina. It's, it's not as simple as that. This is coming from podcasts. It's coming from writers. It's coming from labor. It's coming from just the excitement and the realization and the awakening of people. And that's why I feel hopeful about the future. So entertain me here for a moment. I'm going to try to convince you that you should run for president. <laughs> I've heard you say that before. Okay. Well, I did a whole segment on it and I, I enjoyed it very much as I did it. I, I think I showed you, somebody took a picture of me. It's so interesting. I showed you that picture when I was watching you doing that and I couldn't believe it. I cannot thank you enough for that. Well, here, so let me make my case for those who haven't seen it because I actually think <coughs> it, it's important. So you look at Bernie Sanders in 2016 and you look at Bernie Sanders in 2020 and he definitely sparked something. He sort of awakened a generation. He ushered in this new wave of a New Deal kind of politics that reminded people that this is possible. We don't have to always be permanently stuck in the Bill Clinton model or the Barack Obama model. Uh, there's something better out there. And it really got a lot of people involved in politics. Now, after 2020, you look at the way everything unfolded, and I could sit here all day and do the sour grapes thing, and I could give everybody the million and one rationalizations as to why Bernie went down. 2016, the DNC was involved. There was definitely some fuckery behind the scenes, to say the very least. 2020, I like to call it Bloody Monday, when you had Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar, they all dropped out on the same day, endorsed Bernie, uh, endorsed, what excuse me, I wish. happened? Uh, yeah, endorsed <laughs> Biden, and, and the media also went in and, and really went for the jugular and compared him to Fidel Castro, and you want the U.S. to be like Cuba. So I, I could do that all day. But when I look back at it now, he sparked something, it's very important, but now the torch needs to be passed. And the question is, to who? Um, for as much as I love Bernie, he does have some blind spots, in my opinion. One of those blind spots is that he's been in Washington, D.C. since roughly 1784. <laughs> and when you're in D.C. that long, even with the outsider credentials that he has, through osmosis, you sort of become part of that system. And so he thinks of Joe Biden first and foremost as my friend Joe Biden, even though I have these gentlemen's ideological disagreements with him. And that's the main problem, too, is that that's not gen gentlemen's disagreements. You're talking about the Iraq war. That's a war crime. You're talking about the Patriot Act. You're talking about a, a plethora of policies which have honestly led to the downfall and the destruction of this country in many respects. The reason why I think you're the heir apparent is because you're not Bernie Sanders. 
you have agreements with him and on, on many policy issues, you're the same, but you actually offer people something in a particularly nihilistic age and moment, you offer people something that's different than any other politician that I've ever seen. Now, look, I came up with not just only progressive politics and Noam Chomsky. I was also part of the new atheist movement in a way with Richard Dawkins and the whole like condescending to religious people like, oh, you believe that? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, you wizard in the sky? <laughs> Idiot. Like I was part of that whole thing, right? But, you know, as I've grown and I look back at a lot of that stuff, I, I think I, I cringe a little bit and I think well, it's obviously more complex than that, more sophisticated than that. And I wasn't giving it its due diligence. And so you touch and touch something in people that honestly is more of a, like a spiritual thing. It's more of like an energy thing where people need to feel like there's something deeper in life. There's a, there's a, a greater purpose. And it's not the same kind of thing that the fundamentalist evangelical Christians do, where they make it about this doctrine of like hate. Yours is like, no, we can work on a collective project together, which moves us towards a better future. So given the fact that you have the, you know, the economic credentials, the populist credentials, the outsider credentials mixed in with that extra element, which I don't see from anybody else on the political landscape, no matter how many much I might like some other people in the political landscape, I think that's why it's it's your moment. And I think you should run in 2024. <laughs> well, first of all, just on a personal level, uh, respecting your intelligence and your political perspicacity as much as I do, uh, please know I'm honored to hear you say that. And I thank you. Um, and the fact that you not only feel it, but are willing to uh, say it publicly the way you have and the way you just did, I'm really honored by that. Um, you and I and others have been in a deep conversation over, and, and all of your listeners too, everybody is asking ourselves, first of all, what needs to be done? Not first who needs to do it, but what needs to be done? And I think there is a growing consensus about that. And I'm part of that consensus, definitely. In terms of the who, um, I think that my uh, asking myself that is as deep as anybody asking themselves that. Um, I think there is a spear. All that the person running is, is the tip of the spear. But, you know, you look at something like Christian Smalls, an individual does have an important part to play. Um, I, I think of myself as assessing, listening. I said to somebody the other day, my ear is to the ground, my eyes to the sky. Um, I, the fact that someone like yourself says what you're saying, um, you were saying the other day, and I really agree with you, the comments that you were making about how an elite, even a, a left elite, shouldn't be anointing someone. Mm -hmm. It should be coming from the mm -hmm. grassroots. It should be coming from the heart of whoever feels called to do it. Um, I know the brutality of the experience, and I know the exhilaration of the experience. I feel that what I have learned from being in the belly of that beast has taught me a lot, a lot, um, I know that there are people such as yourself and yourself and others who would know what needs to be done now. Um, and um, I'm in deep listening. And um, I, I do know this. At this point in history, and I think who runs for president is always important, who wins the presidency is always important. At this point in history, particularly with what will be confronting us in 2024, whether it's Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis, um, this is not a moment to clutter the field. If you do it, you do it well, you do it impeccably, um, you do it energetically, you do it powerfully, you do it strongly. If I feel called in my heart, and that would, my 
whether or not I'm cold in my heart has a lot to do with such things as what you just said. I, I don't in any way underestimate how important that is. Thank you. Um, but I also know, and I've shared with, with you as well, um, there have to be a lot of people who have made it clear uh, they're in. And uh, we went in a conversation the other day, actually. Uh, and somebody said, I want to help you get your voice out there. <laughs> no, no. If we, do, if we do it, we're doing it. Uh, if we do it, we're doing it. And if we do it, we're going to do it to offer to the American people uh, a legitimate option for agenda and character and ethics and perspective on our economy, on our government, and on America's place in the world um, that could actually seriously and powerfully interrupt the status quo, much along the way uh, that FDR did. FDR said we must take drastic measures if necessary. To write, I see American, I see American democracy is like a ship that's listing. Mm. And this incremental approach to making things a little bit better here, a little bit better there, is not making fundamental change. Um, the Republicans, obviously, the way the party sits right now, not every Republican, but the core of the party right now is such disdain for the suffering of masses of people. Mm. The Democratic Party, even the corporatists, like to wring their hands and say, we'd like to ameliorate the suffering, alleviate the distress. And what, what Franklin Roosevelt represented, and what I feel we need to represent, and what we would certainly represent if I run, is no, alleviating the distress of people is not enough. You must make fundamental economic reform. You must be willing to challenge those underlying forces, at this point mainly corporate forces, whose behavior, if allowed to continue the way it is, inevitably creates more distress and perpetuates more patterns of suffering. So if we do run, we're running, uh, providing uh, the American people with an option of fundamental economic reform. And I just, I, I don't think, and I think we need to get past the left versus right mm. uh, dichotomy. It's really the system versus the people. Mm. It's not the left versus the right. I think this left versus right thing is almost like a, a purse snatcher's trick Mm. Make right. people think you're you're the problem. You're the problem. No, 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 no. You're both being screwed by the same people. Yeah. They're the problem. And I think more and more people are beginning to see that. Whether I'm, I'm a person and whether my running is is the best option for bringing that forward, I don't know yet. Um, it is. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, it means it well. Means and a let lot me let me just add to what you just said because I think, in a sense, you actually give the Democrats a little bit too much credit by saying that they want to ameliorate the suffering because they want to ameliorate suffering for some, but they also have a lot of hate and contempt for much of the country, and so you do have this trick of trying to convince people that no, actually, the greatest, your biggest problem and the threat to your life, and this comes from, you know, all three of the cable news nets, is that person who disagrees with you on X, Y, or Z issue. And so one of the things that I think is essential about you and your perspective is that you, you know, obviously people are complicated and good, bad, and everything else, but you actually believe in the American people. And that's the foundation of a populist is, you know, these elites have had control for a while now, and it hasn't gone so well. So maybe we actually should recommit to democracy, to actual democracy, and all of the 
messiness and discomfort that that does entail. When you just said that it hasn't gone so well, I think we need to take it the next step. It has been a spectacular failure. Mm. The last 40 years of the neoliberal economic and political um, establishment has been a spectacular aberrational failure. We are six inches from the cliff uh, on the state of our democracy, uh, on the state of income inequality, on the state of our environment, even on the state of foreign policy. Look at what's happening with Russia. And I think that's really what we need to see with malice towards none, with charity for all. You guys have, you have not just not gone so well. This group needs to step aside now and the people need to step in. Um, Eisenhower said the American mind at its best is both liberal and conservative. There are high-minded liberals, there are high-minded conservatives. Neither one of them have too much, uh, too much sway within either major political party right now. But there is, I believe, a new consensus to be drawn that does begin with the recognition that where we are is intolerable. Where we are is unacceptable. For us, you know, when, when they talk about like we're fringe people on the left, like it's fringe to suggest that my grandchildren should be able to breathe. It's fringe to suggest suggest that uh, an, every American child should should be educated. Like it's fringe to suggest <clears throat> that people should be able to have health care when what they're calling fringe positions is considered moderate positions in most Western democracies that are doing much better than we are. In most European countries, it's assumed uh, that they're going to have universal health care. It's assumed in, in most advanced democracies and all the advanced democracies, as a matter of fact, they either have free higher education or very, very inexpensive. Americans have been trained to expect too little. They've been propagandized to protect those who have no interest in protecting them. Mm. You know, I, it seems to me that if more rich people in this country really saw how the poor in this country live, there would be more compassion. And if more poor people saw how the very rich in this country actually live, there would be more rage. Mm. Yeah. That, that segregation is very unfortunate. Uh, too many people don't see how other people in this country are actually living. Yeah. There, you know, there was a study that came out a while ago. Do you remember this? That it said that uh, basically the more wealthy you become, the more sociopathic you, you become. You become more of an asshole. Right. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they, they I lived in LA for a long time and I can tell you, so go around saying, even in some rooms where you probably weren't supposed to say it, you know, something happens to you people at 750 million. You try to pretend, but something at 750 million, I watch you, you think the laws of civilization don't apply to you anymore. So there's, there's a couple of studies to this <laughs> regard and the one that I remember the specifics of the best is, I think it was, this study was done in California. I think it UC Berkeley, if memory serves. And they had, um, they stopped, uh, they, they watched a stop sign and to determine which cars like behaved like jerks at the stop yes. sign and basically like went Fancy through, car. even though there was somebody else waiting or just ran through the stop sign. And overwhelmingly, it was the people with like the fanciest, most expensive cars that be, behave like jerks at the stop yeah, sign. I read that. But there are, uh, there are other studies that, you okay. know, if you're not yeah, convinced yeah, yeah. by the stop sign <laughs> well, example. Well, it's just but, that it's people who buy expensive cars are douchebags. Yeah. Like, well, you don't even need to be <laughs> rich to get an expensive car. You just get the car. You know what I, I mean? Know. <laughs> a lot of the people, if you look at a town like Los Angeles, a lot of those expensive cars are being leased by people, in fact, who could who not afford the Who can't quite. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Who yeah. can't really. Just yeah. what people but there is other research that also shows that the higher you go up the income ladder, the less compassion you right. have. That's and right. I mean, it makes sense because ultimately you have to justify to yourself 
why, you know, it's okay for you to have this. And right. for all of these masses of yeah, people, you start that you know, it's struggling a so in meritocracy. That's what happens. When you yeah. get to the top, you think, you're like, oh, this, this. this was all legit. This was all like, I, I just worked really hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but we have to be really careful here. Not every rich person is a greedy bastard. Oh, no, I'm not saying and, that. Yeah. No. We're just saying statistically. But I, <laughs> they're more likely to be greedy bastards. <laughs> I, I also think that we have developed a system in America where the, the establishment, and some of this isn't even consciousness, it's just the way the sociopathic machinery works is what we will provide a certain standard of living for a certain group of people. Whatever suffering results from this, whether it's um, domestically or internationally, just keep it out of eyesight. Right. So the yeah. people don't see it. I remember I was living in Santa Barbara. I just moved there and I um, picked up the local newspaper and it said that they were passing a law that um, you could not sit on the sidewalk. And I said to a friend, why would they pass a law that you could not sit on the sidewalk? And they said they don't want the homeless people right. sitting on the sidewalk because then people will see them. And if they mm -hmm. see them, it just might arouse their conscience. So make sure they're not in eyesight. And so it's very simple. It's very easy in America to put your blinders on. Mm -hmm. And that's why when a lot of this stuff began with BLM and so forth, a lot of people were saying this is so awful. And black people were saying, oh, this is not new. It's news to you. And I think that that's what's happening now. The complete bankruptcy of the system is becoming so obvious no matter who you are. You can't pretend anymore. That's the bad news. But the good news is that people are facing the bad news. And now we have to ask ourselves, what do we do? And I think going back to that question we were asking before, what we don't do is give it to the same people who have created the problem Right. To fix. Yeah. That has got to stop this idea that what the system calls qualified mm. is people who are qualified to perpetuate the system that has done all this damage. So let me ask you this, because when we talk about I think we agree, probably all of us here, we agree at what's at the root of all of these problems, you know, the laundry list of issues that we're dealing with. And I think the heart of it is probably the corruption you know, the fact that from the late 1970s and onward, there's been, onwards, there's been a number of Supreme Court decisions that effectively legalized money in politics yeah, and, and basically bribery. made bribery legal. Yeah. I mean, that's that's really what happened. And uh, as a result of that, you know, you have the politics. There's a Princeton study that found this, too. The politicians represent the corporations and the billionaires. And, you know, there's like no statistical impact what the what the population wants versus the policy we end up getting implemented into law. So I look at that and in, in many like I want to fix that problem. But in some ways, I look at that problem and it almost seems insurmountable because you would need a constitutional amendment to make clear that money's not speech. So you need to go it, like it's beyond a legislative problem in many respects. But having said that, there's one other way to to try to fight back against this, which has appealed to me very much. And I'm curious what you think about it. It's this idea of basically a, a federal direct democracy law where every time you go vote for president, um, you know, you can, there's some process to determine what are the main issues that get on the ballot, but you could have the American people directly vote on whatever. Should we legalize marijuana? Should we have a $15 minimum wage? And the reason why that gives me hope is that if we get something like that implemented, the polls on all the issues that we care deeply about are as, a, astonishingly in our favor, <laughs> where even when Donald Trump won Florida in the 2020 election, 60% of the population voted for a higher minimum wage. So that tells me the ideas are popular. There's just no real way to try to get them implemented. So do you like that idea of a, a direct democracy law, whether it's at the federal level or even passing a federal law to make it so that each state has their own individual direct democracy law. What do you think of that? Well, first of all, ultimately, we will need a constitutional amendment. There's Agreed. no doubt about that. But we're not getting that 
anytime soon, or a, a Supreme Court that is willing to um, override, you know, uh, overturn Citizens United, which yeah. isn't happening anytime soon, although who knows. The problem with direct democracy, and of course, Mike Gravel talked about it, uh, California has gone pretty far with the ballot initiatives, et cetera. The problem is, you're right. Right now, the people are with us. <laughs> right now, the people are with us. Right now, the majority of Americans want Medicare for all. Right now, uh, the majority of people want uh, free college or substantially lower costs. Right now, people want at least a substantial reduction uh, in um, the college loan debt. Right now, people want a higher minimum wage. However, the founders did have a point about representative democracy being an antidote to mob rule. When you look at the Koch-funded forces, I'm not sure they wouldn't just change their strategy to some extent. So I'm not sure that totally fixes it. I'm for anything uh, that will help override this 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 hegemonic power of, of, of the corporatist forces. But on the other hand, I think when you say what is the deepest answer, the deepest answer is, is an ethical uh, uprising, a politics of conscience. That takes us back to even what's happening right now with the Nina Turner races and these other progressives. What would fix it is enough people who do agree with these progressive policies. We're working right now on these non-corporate-backed progressive congressional races for 2022. So, so can I just push back a little bit yeah. on that direct democracy thing? Because um, I'm not saying I'm against it. I'm no, I understand. It. I just want to flesh out the idea yeah. a little more so people understand it a little better. Because it's a common thing people say is like, oh, well, isn't that mob rule? What are mm -hmm. the issues with that? You know, mm -hmm. we should probably think this through more. So first of all, that that's why you have constitutional rights protected and they're off the table. So that's not open. Because yes, in 1957 in Mississippi, if you vote on should we end segregation, it would be overwhelming that people would say, no, we shouldn't end segregation. Is that a legitimate vote? Well, if you say, hey, constitutional issues, constitutional rights and human rights are off the table. You cannot directly vote on that because they're effectively concrete and set in stone. Then the proposal is everything outside of a rights issue can be directly voted on. And it is true. You, you make a good point when you say, look, well, the big money interests will find a way to manipulate yeah. it in a bunch of different... And they have. But there is a much better track record, even with the big money interests trying to drive certain issues and flip votes in certain directions. Even <clears> with that... The side that is actually more correct in my estimation ends up winning like 80% of the time. It's complicated, though. First of all, you were talking about human rights abuses and voting rights, et cetera, being sacrosanct. No, they're not. The legislative forces that we have right now are abusing. I mean, if 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 Congress is is allowing and the president is allowing an arms sale to Saudi Arabia, when we know that America's participation with Saudi Arabia is contributing to a genocidal war in Yemen, Although there is now a truce and be, largely because of legislative efforts, uh, some of that has been forestalled, you actually can't say that human rights abuse is, is protected. My question to you, though, is how would that work? I mean, what is the point of the legislative branch? How do laws get passed in that case? So the way it works is the way that it currently works in a bunch of different states that have the direct ballot initiative. Okay. So you have some sort of process to determine which things get on the ballot. And then when you go in to vote, if you're voting for president, for example, you'd be, okay, who do you want to vote for? Democrat, Republican, Green Party, Libertarian candidate. You would check whatever box. And then underneath it, it would be direct issues. How do you vote on should we, whether or not we should legalize marijuana? Kind of like ballot yes no. initiative. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, that's what I mean by direct uh -huh. democracy. I don't, I, I mean... Think of that, but at a federal level, and instead of on, you know, what should we rename this road <laughs> by our house, it's 
Should we legalize marijuana? Should we have fifteen dollars okay. minimum wage? So let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. It would. It's, first of all, I think you should have someone on to talk to who lives in California, because Californians have really had um, a lot of this ballot initiative, and there's a a very passionate debate about this. It's had mixed results, but also I think of Brexit in England. Um, I, you know, I know enough people who live in London and in other places. Uh, so, so the non-Londoners. Um, really wanted to screw it to the Londoners, basically, is what happened with Brexit. Um, many people would argue uh, that this was not the best thing for England. So sometimes it doesn't go the way that I would like it or you would like it or others would like it. But again, I think my point is, when you look at the way the system works now versus yeah. if we had that sort of a system implemented, we would have way more wins for our side than under our current system. I think the other piece of this um, goes back to what you were originally saying, Kyle, about the problems with money, too, because... It does override that. You know, oh, I think I think about... Well, I, I just was thinking about, you know, union elections. Um, typically, you know, it's very, very difficult to succeed. And, um, you know, obviously union rates have been declining for years and years now because even though technically you have this ability to directly vote and directly, you know, uh, make the choice of, of whether you want a union or don't want a union. The fact of the matter is, because of the systemic conditions surrounding that union vote, you're not really free. So, for example, in Bessemer, Alabama, you have this Amazon Fulfillment Center, pays better wages, not great wages, but better wages than most of the other jobs in the area. It's a very depressed place, deindustrialized, thanks to, you know, our friends in the Democratic Party That's and right. the Republican Party. That's right. And so you have people who have a level of um, desperation. So when you're then faced with, you know, union busting meetings from Amazon, probably threatening your job or overtly or, or covertly saying effectively like, listen, you know, we could we could go away as quickly as we can then you're not really free to make whatever choice in a, an open way. And so I think money also sort of stacks the deck a lot of times with ballot initiatives in California but and other places. But it's more now is the point. Yeah. I'm just, That's the, like, yeah, it's no, an improvement it. on what we have now, and right. it's a gigantic improvement on what we have because, now. It's not even close. Yeah. Right. Because the concept, the original concept, of course, was that our Congress would be a deliberative body and people would be deliberating on behalf of their constituents, but they're not because of the poisoning of the money. Right. So it all goes back to the bottom line poison, toxicity, which is the undue influence of money either way you go. And the only way to override that is back to Christian Smalls, back to community, back to genuine solidarity, back to awakening. Uh, the American people are going to have to take care of this. Um, at the ballot box, whether it's a direct democracy ballot initiatives or, or, or anything else, it has to be an awakening inside us. Um, and that's where I think ultimately the answer is going to come from, regardless of the modalities such as you mentioned. What was the response? There was a um, piece in The Hill recently that quoted you where the reporter, Hannah Trudeau, who's a solid reporter, asked you, you know, <coughs> if you were thinking of running for president. And um, you gave a response basically saying, you know, I'm, I'm not closing the door on anything and I'm listening to what's out there. What was the response to that piece? Did, was it was it interesting or was it sort of edifying for you at all? I didn't really see much, you know, I, I pretty much see what I've always seen. Some people giving credence to my ideas and some people 
who seem to think I have crystals in my house or mm-hmm. that I peddle crystals or that I <laughs> am kooky or... I have crystals in my house. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> you have crystals all in your house. a friend of mine who's on <laughs> CNN a lot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she's very much an establishment neoliberal voice, although she would say, no, I'm not. But she is in terms of the context of her... Her house is filled with crystal. So I don't actually, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I have seen personally, I actually read a bunch of the comments on your Breakfast Club interview yeah. because I was interested in that because obviously like, you know, I, I know how people in our world respond to you, but the, they have more of like a normie audience. And I was really floored by the the comments. The response mm-hmm. to you was incredibly overwhelming. People felt that sense of like, she's speaking to something deeper than just these surface level issues. So I thought that was interesting. I think it will be harder to smear and dismiss you this time than it was last time because people have just gotten, first of all, they've just gotten to see you more outside of these little, you know, mo- debate moments or whatever the media wants to blow up and use to yeah. sort of caricature you yeah. as a ridiculous person. And second of all, because, you know, every year that goes by, there's more awareness of the tricks that the media does use yeah. to dismiss and smear people that they find to be um, threatening or uncomfortable. And the things that I had actually said, as opposed to what was being said that I had said. Yes. Um, and also, as the two of you have made clear, I would not be sort of out there by myself this time. Yeah. I think, um, and I am aware of that. And that is uh, part of what the... And and Bernie has cracked the door open to 2024 if Biden doesn't run. That's... But that's... Yeah. Biden is planning on running again. I don't think anyone should delude themselves that he's going to step down. And I think that's such an important issue. People saying, oh, I'm not running if he's running. Shouldn't it be what would be what would defeat the Republicans in 2024? Isn't that what the question should be? And what's better for the country? And yeah. and that's what I was going to say. And right. what's better for the country rather than the standing in line? This is what I mean by the Democratic Party being sclerotic. Right. What are we talking about if he doesn't run? The question should be is, could he beat Trump again? Hmm. Could he beat DeSantis? That should be the question. What do we need uh, to, to defeat the Republicans? What do we need to do to change the country? Not this this inside baseball well if he's running i'm not um that makes that makes me want to run it shouldn't matter i mean he, he's a nice man i'm sure i think his wife is lovely but this is not about that right that's right uh grade the biden administration for me d <laughs> that's a solid answer. is that how look, you would say yeah well yes because here's the thing that i'll i i give maybe uh, look i like to think i'm a fair dude and so <laughs> i give credit where credit is due <clears throat> and so areas where i could give joe biden credit right to repair mm-hmm. i think that's very important the farmers were very happy when he did that that yeah. was a, that was a mm-hmm. big deal i actually give him credit i know you know mainstream media thought this was the worst thing he ever did i totally disagree i actually give him credit pulling out of Afghanistan. I thought that was a good thing. I've been calling for that for 20 years. It's not like when you leave, all of a sudden it's going to be puppies and rainbows. It's like, of course it was going to be a mess when you left. I think he could have done uh, much better on that. Well, and also he's now starving the country through sanctions Thank and stealing you, $7 billion of their dollars. Which overrides any... Uh, absolutely. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, of course. All the facts matter mm-hmm. and that fact yeah. is super important. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's almost, it's tepid credit on that. Mm-hmm. Another thing he did was raise the... Um, 
the minimum wage for federal, federal employees workers, and federal yes, contractors did. to $15 an hour. I'll give credit on that. He yeah. did a slate of executive orders the first day or first week he was in office that yeah. reversed all the terrible Trump era stuff. That's the good stuff. Well, let me Lena add Khan, one. Lena Khan, some I, of the anti-Trump. Oh, and the NLRB. So I, I was right. gonna, yeah. NLRB. Yes, yeah. I was going to add And now Supreme Court Justice. Now Supreme Court Justice, too. Uh, Brown Jackson, absolutely right. excellent. And we're done with the good stuff. <laughs> then, you well, know, it's some, the, the, some of the stuff in the American Rescue Plan, yeah. No, one. see, okay, now on that, for me, I think he's, honestly, I think he's a massive legislative legis legislative failure, I think he is, because, you know, even the things that he proclaims to believe in, he does not have the ability like LBJ or FDR did to play politics, twist arms, play hardball, and get what he wants. Either well, that or he just yes, doesn't want we were, any of the things he says he wants. We were told because he was such an institutionalist, he knew he'd been in oh, the yeah. for so long, he right. knew how to get things done there. Yeah. There were articles saying he was like FDR. Uh, yeah. Well, and yeah, then they shifted. Yeah. They're like, well, maybe he's more like LBJ because of that arm twisting. They're like, he knows how to work. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. And he hide, they hide behind the parliamentarian or they'll hide. Right. He keeps saying about, about the college loan debt, you know, Jen Psaki says, you know, if Congress sends him a bill to to cancel 10,000 10, of it, he'll sign it. He could cancel it tonight. Yeah, that's so, so gas, And also teasing, he's like teasing people. Even now, mm. we might we might cancel <sighs> 10,000. Stop teasing. Right, do and it he wants or don't means, do it. And he wants to means great. test it, guys. Or, or when yeah. people say, my great friends, point. my neoliberal friends keep texting me, he canceled 3 million. I said, of that, <laughs> that 1.5 oh trillion dollar debt. <laughs> Donald Trump canceled more student debt than that, I'm pretty uh -huh. sure. Well, I don't know, because by Biden has done a, a number now of Ron, the little things here and there, like people who went to for-profit <laughs> colleges, they canceled that. Veterans are disabled. Like there were yeah. things that, yeah, but it amounts to, I think, 17 or 20 billion or something like it's, that. It's not significantly different than what previous. No, it's very similar to say, Trump. Exactly. Say, but yeah, yeah, the thing that you said is the most important. It is misleading for him to say and for Jen Psaki to say Congress should send a bill to his desk. He'll under under yeah. the Higher Education Act of, I think, 1964, 63, around there. Uh the Secretary of Education has the authority yeah. at the behest of the president to eliminate all of it if well, he wants to. Well, he supposedly asked for a report on what he's uh, legally able to do, and we've never seen it. Mm. We've never seen it. Mm. But I think even more important than how he's doing is even despite how he's doing, I think we'd all agree, we'd rather see him than uh, a, a Trump second term or Ron DeSantis, if for no other reason than Katanji Brown Jackson, et cetera, because we want to override uh, Citizens United. We want to the NLRB was crucial, is big. Was crucial yeah. for Amazon mm -hmm. and Starbucks. Absolutely. And, and once again, some of his economic policies might have made that. I mean, I've heard enough from friends on both sides of that argument. However, the point is, would he even win? That's what we have to be thinking right. about. Yeah. And I think there's a, a big question. The Republicans will be coming at us with... Um, uh, with a lot. And, uh, and in the last election, uh, because of COVID, uh, because people were... Um, some people just had it with Trump and his tweets and so forth. Um, I think we should be having a much more sophisticated conversation than whether or not he wants to run and whether and, people are waiting to decide. And also on the biggest things, he has been an abject failure in my opinion. You can't have a pandemic and then do nothing on healthcare. Like you can't, you can't do that. And he could declare a medical emergency. Right. And actually, basically expand Medicare to everyone. He could do that if he wanted to. And once again, for the American people to realize that in every other advanced democracy, that is what they have.
Yeah. You know, it's like this. Everybody keeps talking about the mental health crisis. Well, what's the basis of the mental health crisis? A lot of it is bad public policy that's driving everybody crazy. Yeah. You can't live. If you have 64% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, one in four Americans can't uh, pr- uh, fulfill the <clears throat> fill the prescriptions um, uh, given to them by their own doctors. You have, uh, I was reading just this morning that the majority of people in the United States would need a 70% pay raise to have a basic living wage. Wow. Uh, you have 31 uh, uh, million Americans who are uninsured. This kind of chronic economic tension and anxiety makes it very hard for people to live their lives well. What is the purpose of government if not to support people in living their lives well? What does inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness mean if not policies that actually support people in being able to produce and to create and live their best lives? Because that's what creates the best for the country. And I think it's important to remember, because I see the Declaration of Independence. I'm a little bit romantic about this. Not only is it that all men are created equal, not only is it that God gave all men inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but the other two main principles are it is the purpose of government. Governments are instituted to secure those rights, not to thwart those rights, Mm. but to secure those rights. And it is the right of the people, should government not be doing that, to alter it or to abolish it. And that's what I was telling these kids at, at Starbucks the other day. You are the best of America. You pushing back on these forces that are seeking to squash you, you're reinvigorating the labor movement. You're not outside agitators. You know, I I have to say this. I asked these these people who are on on my Twitter, I put um, one of the interviews I did with one of the the young uh, unionizers, 17 years old. And I asked all of them, I said, not all of them, because I didn't think to do it till a few in. I said, would you look into the camera and tell Howard Schultz what you would say to him if he were here? Everyone said, I love Starbucks. You said we're outside uh, agitators. This is coming from inside. Some of them were saying, I remember when it was better. One was saying, I've read your book. I believe the principles. I don't hate Starbucks. I love Starbucks. I want you to see it to be what you say you want it to be. So I think it's the best of America, those of us who are pushing back. It's not because we hate this country. It's because we love it. I saw it a tweet from Ron Klain that I found very (laughs) revealing and very depressing, which is, I don't know if you all followed closely, I know you did, but the French election results where Macron wins the incumbent, Macron, who's like, he's not even, you can't even consider him on the left in any way at this point, but total neoliberal economics, everything for the rich, massive, you know, protests, backlash to his economic policy. He also moved significantly to the right culturally to try to stem the rising tide of the far right in France. Didn't work out that well since Marine Le Pen did better than, you know, they've ever done before. But he did win with 58 percent. He though. did. I yeah. mean, he won. And he we won. won him to but that pretty we convincing. Don't want yeah. Marine Le Pen to be. Uh, of course not. Yeah. yeah. But she did better than she ever yeah, done before. So did. the idea of like, oh, I'm going to stem the tide, rising tide didn't exactly work out by moving to the right. All of that aside, he won re-election and won it handily with a 36 percent approval rating. And so Ron Klain Mm -hmm. tweets out like, oh, look, he was able to win with the 36% approval rating. Very interesting. Basically saying like, oh, Uh you know, Biden doesn't need to be popular because, you know, we can just run. The Trump is, you know, evil incarnate. So it doesn't matter what we do. You might not like him. He may only have 36% approval rating, but you got to stick with it because that's the only choice you got. 
Well, it's not, you know, keep talking like that, baby, and we're running. <laughs> Good. I, I really hope so. Because, you know, like for me, the failure on Build Back Better was everything. Because we spent all this time, all these negotiations. Oh, all we went these, deep on the look, details and I, everything. If, uh, here, yeah. Here's a hot take for everybody. If the original Build Back Better bill had passed, Joe Biden would get reelected and the Democrats would have won in these upcoming And midterms. we'd be, exactly, in the midterms. Yep. You know, they keep saying the Democrats need a better message. No, they don't. They need better policy. They need Correct. a better reality. <laughs> they need to win. Win on the things that help people. Do like, something right. for people. Yeah. Do something for people. How do you say to people who can't even afford their car payments that they should be grateful because you're going to have better roads? <sighs> That's a mm. great point. Yeah. That's yeah. a great point. I mean, look at what was in that bill. It was elder care. It was universal pre-K. It was extended child was tax credit. It was lower there. prescription drug prices. I remember looking at the bill and going, this is the largest transformation of the no, American economy since the New Deal. It was wonderful. It was a big deal. And then, of course, it sputtered out in 17,000 ways and died. Well, and and so many people would now say, but it was mansion, but it was cinema. But what we, we need to keep pointing out is how much the president could do with executive orders. Yes, yes. Yeah. Or the thing that Bernie points out all the time, which is, why aren't you bringing up standalone bills on the things That's that Cinema right. and Mansion say they agree with? Mansion right. says I'm for universal pre-K. Right. Okay, here's the bill. Are you going to vote for it? You know, I've had some conversations with you in my head because <laughs> we, we talked after the State of the Union. And you were right and I was wrong. Because I thought, he says he's for these things. He's going to introduce them as standalone bills. So you're being too hard on him. But you were right because we didn't. It's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, we would have wished that you would be right. Yeah, I, I would be ultimately. so happy to be proven. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there's also just the fact that the whole thing is listless. You still could not say at this point in his presidency, what are your priorities? Like, yeah, there's no you, vision. There's no vision. What do you actually care about getting done? What do you think is the central critique here and how to deliver for them? So, we have no idea. So then the question is, what are they going to say in 2024? Trump's what? bad. That's it. I mean, that's, that's the Ron Plain tweet. Is like you that's might hate us, but you got no other choice. Time. That is not Look, going to work. I don't this know time. what's going to happen, but that is a dreary style of politics, isn't it? Other guy bad. I mean, that's the whole. We just talked before about the whole triggering the libs thing on the right. That's the mirror image of that. Mm -hmm. That's the Democratic version of that. Trump's mm -hmm. bad. Yeah, I know. What else you got for me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're fascist. Um, and we don't have to worry about people voting for the Republicans, but we do have to worry about masses staying home. Masses of people staying home. And before we even get to 2024, we have to worry about that for 2022. Um, oh, he's got such conclusion. a short a period. Of, well, but we can help with that. Once again, candidatesummit.com. Um, so you tell everybody what that is. You have a list of progressive <clears throat> candidates who you've endorsed. Yes, yes. yes. And, mm -hmm. and both of you and others of our colleagues have helped. Um, it is um, pro progressive candidates all around the country. Nina, of course, is one of them. Jason Call in in Washington and Watarazi in Connecticut and um, Shervin uh, um, Azami in California. They're wonderful people. Um, just uh, some wonderful uh, candidates all over the country, and they're they're. They've been vetted by myself and Howie Klein from Down With Tyranny, Howie's been a bit of a mentor of mine, and they're great. And I hope that people will go to the website at candidatesummit.com. Dot com or dot org? 
candidatesummit.com. Okay. Candidatesummit.com. And you can see, and you can see little videos of these people and what they stand for. Glenn Hurst, who's running also, Glenn Hurst, who's running for Senate uh, in um, in Iowa, a couple of other people who are doing uh, great Senate things. Gary Chambers. I mean, some marvelous people out there are running. So I think we need to think in terms of our movement uh, or movement of anyone. You know, we don't have to you know, words like left limit us, words like progressive limit us. But there is a, a kind of new populism, I think. Um, you know, in 2016, there was this populist cry of despair that is still there. It was represented by the authoritarian populist Donald Trump. It was represented by the progressive populist uh, Bernie. Bernie Sanders. And it was the DNC that suppressed that. But that righteous populism, that cry of despair is still there. It hasn't gone away. And the question really that we're all seeking an answer to is how do we best harness that and turn it into political force? One thing we can do, though, is show up for these progressive candidates. Um, and not only those uh, we've endorsed at CandidateSummit.com, but all over, all over the country, if people are aware, you know, if you're in, everybody has a congressional election this year, and a third of the country uh, has a Senate primary. These primaries are happening now. And if, if this show does anything um, to help awaken people to who is running in my district and how might I throw in my uh, $5, throw in my effort, um, I don't think we should underestimate the importance of our showing up for these midterms. I think that is very well said. And I think anybody who needed, you know, uh, something to get their nihilism out and to have a shot of hope and believe again that, you know, incredible things are possible and we don't have to just accept the world as it is. Christian Smalls and the Starbucks Absolutely. workers have really provided that Absolutely. jolt of hope and made you realize, yeah, the system is right. Yeah, it's an insane challenge. It's completely unfair. That doesn't mean you don't do it. That doesn't mean right. that you give up hope. That doesn't mean that you just cede the territory to the forces of evil. So, if for no other reason than that you could look at yourself in the mirror, exactly. Yeah, at a principle, at a just, spite, whatever reason you yeah, want, just do it. <laughs> if you just withdraw from that right now, you've just been played. Yeah, yeah, you're doing the thing that they want you to do. Yeah, Marianne, always lovely talking to you. Thank always you. Always lovely talking to you. Thank you. Thank Our you. Our pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, there she is, Marianne Williamson. Um, I really want her to run for president. That's what I'll say. So I think that she would be a really significant and important voice. And the reason I think it is because, as you said, she taps into something that is Bernie adjacent, but she's her own thing. Right, yeah. And I like that she doesn't come directly out of Bernie world. Me too. Yeah, me too. Because there are a lot of, you know, I mean, look, Bernie became a polarizing figure in a lot of ways, not really because of his fault, but he has become a very polarizing figure. The people around him have become, it's become a whole thing. Um, so she has a chance at kind of a clean slate. And I think the sky is kind of the limit in terms of the types of people that she could appeal to who, you know, maybe you wouldn't expect off the bat, just given where she is ideologically, because she does speak on a kind of deeper level than just surface level political issues. Yeah. Um, I I don't think Bernie is as, what was the word you used to describe Bernie? You said he's, I don't know why I'm blanking on it. You literally just said the word, but it went out of my mind. Um, polarizing. Yeah. I don't think he's as polar. I think every other politician is more polarizing than Bernie is. So I think he's less polarizing than most politicians. But to your point, she's an outsider. And outsiders, by definition, I think, are less polarizing because they get a clean slate and because she very clearly 
wants to be the president for all of America and not just blue America. And her, even though she's very clear with what she believes yes. on paper, here's what I believe. She also is not, you know, she doesn't want to dismiss She's not filled with people who disagree. Right. I mean, there's no contempt. The, there's no hatred. There's that's no anger. One of the things that I not that Bernie has contempt because he no, doesn't. No, 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 no yeah. not, not at all. Not at all. And in fact, I mean, that's why, especially in 2016, he had such broad. Right. Appeal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you'd have plenty of conservative self-identified conservatives who saw a lot of um, of what they also believe. They, they also uh, resonated with his message. And I, I think she really has that chance as well. I mean, I've observed her in a number of disparate settings and in front of different audiences. And there's just almost this very universal, like, yes, that's said to her when she speaks about um, not only where the country is, but she really has a sort of moral voice. Reminds me a little bit of um, Cornell West because he also comes mm-hmm, from that place mm-hmm. of, like, faith and love. Everybody loves and, Cornell West. Right. Nobody I mean, doesn't like Cornell West ex- other than the establishment they hate. Yeah, but exactly. Outside of them— but even they can't really like, you know, I mean, he's just, yeah, you can't help but respond to someone who clearly is coming from such a place of deep love. And I think Marion has that going for her. And like I said before, not that they won't try and not that it won't work with plenty of people, but I think it will be harder for the media to just completely smear and marginalize her the way that they did last time. Well, they're going to be able to smear her. They're 100% going to smear her, but she will not be dismissed as a result of the smear. Right. Because there's going to be the backlash effect where that sort of circles the wagons on the left of people behind her, and that also might get independent people to look at her and go, hmm, what's going on here? This is weird. Yeah. Um, and she, the lane is clear. There's a clear lane. So, And then there's an open question whether or not Biden can even run again, but I think she should run either way because we can't. The status quo cannot continue. Do you agree with me that you think if he is at all able, Biden will run again? Yes. Yeah. I think that uh, I think he has every intention of running now. Um, And, you know, he's apparently he said covered the other day, according to Obama, he said it to Obama or something that he's going to run again in 2024. So I think he wants to. But, you know, I think he's dude clearly uh, psychologically in decline. That's not you know, I'm not breaking news here by saying anything like that. And he's not the man for the moment. He had all those puff pieces written, oh, he's the next FDR, and he governed like Bill Clinton. So, okay, well, now move along, son, move along. And, you know, it's very rare, if not impossible, that an incumbent president gets defeated in a primary. It almost never happens. Right. Um, But I still think even in a situation like that, I think Marianne Williamson could break the record of votes against an incumbent president with a primary from within the party. And then also, it's definitely not a guarantee he makes it to 2024. It's not a guarantee he, even if he makes it, that he will be able to run in 2024. So, and it's just, look, it's not his moment. It's not his moment. He was the default. You're not Trump. Fine, here, we'll let you go play around a little bit and see what you do. But it's not your moment, dog. You're fucking, Crystal, the opposition party is running around the country now, and they cannot shut the fuck up about a stolen election. And the president of, and and he's in the Democratic Party, his approval rating uh, was down as low as 33% in one poll. Right. I think the average is like 41% or 42%. Mm-hmm. These goblins, these ghouls, who are making it super easy to defeat them in every imaginable way. Mm-hmm. Culture war 24-7, never a single thing about jobs or the economy or helping people. Culture war tripe and rigged election and, you know, wee, 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 the whining party all day, <laughs> crying. 
you should be able to beat these guys with half your brain tied behind your back. <laughs> but you can't do it. It's not your time. It's over. It's done, son. Move along. Uh, what, uh, what do you want me to tell you? 33% approval rate? You're, in down, you're down in George W. Bush territory at the end of eight years? Yeah. Like, wh- uh, what are we talking about here? Right. What are we talking? And you had um, that poll that came out that said 58% of people would um, consider supporting an independent candidate, which is a very high— Not going to happen. —high number— Right, but I think it shows the opening for a different vision because I think people would view Marianne as kind of distinct, separate and distinct from the Democratic Party. So I I agree at the sentiment of what you're getting at there, that like that is an indicator of the broad anger and disgust. distrust and disgust With at the Trump system. That's definitely true. Yeah. But as I said in my commentary on the 58% number, people say that. And then they never end up voting for the independent for a variety of reasons, mm-hmm. but mostly because it's massively rigged against them in the media propaganda yeah, and campaign. Like, that, I don't want to throw my vote away. Right. So there's a it, they don't yeah. actually end up doing that. But your but broader point is correct. Yes. You're, yes. And that's unquestionably yeah. accurate. Not to anyway. mention um, the uh, Biden's approval among young people is his lowest among any age group. And that's you need that as a Democrat. You need young people. There's you no doubt about people. it. Yeah. And that also is a tremendous opening because one thing we learned last time around in the Democratic primary was it was young voters who said the number one thing to us is the issues. Right. And there's no doubt that Marianne on the issues way closer <sighs> to, you know, I mean, there's going to be a much Not more powerful close. response. Yeah. So I think that is another indication of the opening because it's actually flipped. And this is fascinating to me. So the beginning of the Biden administration he got his highest ratings from young voters and it went down as you go up the income ladder and I mean the age ladder and now it's exactly reversed his highest approval ratings among the oldest age cohort and young people are the lowest so I mean I guess the old people like it didn't change all that much they were sort of like meh oh so it just dropped to begin begin with and they just just kind of stayed there but everybody else has fallen off with young people falling dramatically from the beginning when they had actually positive, you know, they didn't vote for him overwhelmingly in the primary, but they had generally positive views of him. They show certainly showed up to vote him in over Trump overwhelmingly. And now I think because of part of what uh, you and Marianne were saying about, you know, we keep dangling these things in front of people like maybe we'll do student loan. Maybe you'll get, you know, affordable child. Maybe you'll get that. Maybe you'll get a $15 minimum wage and then not doing any of them. Of course, people are going to be like, what the fuck? No, I'm done with this. I can absolutely guarantee Biden gets a minimum five point bump with two strokes of a pen. Executive order to legalize marijuana recreationally take it off the scheduled substances list, and uh, eliminate student loan debt. If he were to do those two things, he would get a bump of at least five percentage points. And won't do it. Didn't do it. He Again, he might, there's talk about, oh, he might do 10,000, but means tested, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Which, okay, well, fine. Look, is, I'll give partial credit if he doesn't. saying, like, we haven't decided yet, so. Right. So, but uh, you get the point. The mm-hmm. point is, it's not like, you can do something to change it, but he doesn't have it in him. Anyway, all right, guys, um, let's wrap it up here. We love you. Thanks so much for uh, putting up with us and watching the show and <laughs> listening to the show. Uh, we really appreciate it. I really enjoyed that conversation with Marianne. Yeah, that was fun. Um, if you like the show, if you support the show, you can go on over to Substack. And if you pay $5 a month, you get the video of the show uh, a day early. And then everybody else, of course, gets it for free, the audio version, a day later on Saturday. Um, and remember, I'm very, I'm very proud of the fact that we're like one of the only podcasts that refuses to do ads like we just want to keep it totally ad free we want it you know funded small dollar donations from you guys so for everybody who already does fund the show we love you very much we couldn't do it without you it means the world to us and for everybody who um who doesn't what are you doing with your life you gotta you gotta 
you got to hook a brother up and a sister up. Indeed. All right. Love y'all. We'll see you next week.